We're in Exodus chapter 20, uh, and uh, Lord willing, we'll, we'll finish this chapter today because we've been on it a couple of weeks. And then I want to make a number of comments about what uh, chapter 21 and following, how we should look at that. But uh, I just don't remember who all was here the last couple of weeks. But uh, if you have the note packet that I gave you, uh, page 12, which is just a copy of two PowerPoint slides I prepared on uh, the Ten Commandments, I think for you and me, this side of the cross and understanding and always remembering that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law and that the law, as it was functioning in the nation of Israel, is no longer operative. That doesn't mean it isn't. It was evil. Romans 7.12, Paul says the law is perfect and righteous and good. The problem isn't the law. The problem is humanity. And Christ fulfilled all of the obligations of the law. So then we naturally would ask a question. Does that mean that the Ten Commandments, which were kind of the core or the vital center of the moral law of God, is no longer applicable to us, no longer relevant. No, that would be an incorrect assumption. The Ten Commandments, as the moral law of God, are reaffirmed over and over and over and over again in the Scriptures. What I have been saying and and really trying to argue is that the Ten Commandments are a summary of the character of God revealed. They're a summary of how God wants us to live. They're a summary of the moral imperatives for the human being uh, and the human race. Um, another way of putting it, this is these are the principles by which God wants us to live. These are the boundaries on the tennis court. I mean, I could just use metaphor after metaphor after metaphor because they, they really are the governing principles of what brings order and fulfillment to life. So you could then put it negatively. If you choose not to adhere to these, you will experience the disorder and chaos of life. God has has created a universe in which there are ethical standards. And those ethical standards are sourced in his character, and those ethical standards are revealed for our good. It's... It's almost, another way of looking at it, it's almost as if God is saying, I'm the creator, which he is. I have created you, and I have redeemed you through the shed blood and sacrifice of my son on the cross, and his resurrection shows that I have accepted that sacrifice. Therefore, this is how I want you to live. And as our creator and our redeemer, he has every right to set the standards. I mean, you you can push back and say, well, I don't like the standards. Well, then you're saying you do not like, one, how God's created you, nor the standards by which he is hopefully having your best interests at heart if you follow them. And so it's just so many different ways to say this, but I hope the different uh, couple of ways I've laid that on the table, much of it is a review, helps us to see it that way. These are not restrictive these are not, these are not um, in any way thwarting our fulfillment in life. They are enhancing it. They aren't out to make our lives miserable. They're out to make our lives fulfilling. 
You follow me? I mean, just so many ways to look at it. So the first four define our relationship with God. The remaining commandments, and we're kind of in the middle of them now, define our relationship with one another. Um, in a, and I, again, we've talked about this before several times. In summary, this is what Jesus meant when he was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, commandments 1, 2, 3, 4. Love your neighbors yourself, 5 through 10. I mean, that's, it's, it's just everywhere. You just keep seeing it again and again and again. God is saying these are the principles by which I want you to live your life. When I teach ethics, uh, which I've taught for 35 years, and I've written a book on it and everything, I use the Ten Commandments as the framework for a set of eth ethical absolutes in our life. And you might recognize that because that's the header <laughs> for, the trans for the PowerPoint slides that I use. And I, I think that is a refreshing and I, I hope, enlightening way to look at the Ten Commandments. So we're right in the middle of them. So that's a quick summary of what I've been saying for the last two weeks. Is everyone with me? I mean, if you're not, let me, let me know uh, if there's anything you want to clarify. So we, we've dealt with, um, if we're following now the verses, we've dealt with verse 13, you shall not murder. And the principle, of course, is the sanctity of human life. That is really an important point for us. And I could develop this a little bit. I'll say one or two thoughts about it. But the sanctity of human life is rooted, is rooted in the principle that God created the human race in his image. That's Genesis 1.26 and following. That's right out of the chute. One of the very first things we read about our God is that he created humanity in his image. We both resemble him and we represent him. And therefore, humanity, as a part, thinking of it this way, as a part of God's creation, has infinite value and worth. It is not incorrect to say that God holds the human race to a higher value, and by the way, therefore, a higher standard, but a higher value than he does the whale. Or the orangutan. It doesn't mean they're not important to God. For goodness sake, he created them. But in terms of what God, how God views and looks at things, it is only the human race of which he says, you bear my image. And so you then have, this is what I try to encourage my students to do. Then you try to look throughout the scriptures. Can you see God's view of the sanctity of human life at all stages of human development? the way we would put it today in you know, modern psychology or in modern medicine, all the different stages of human development. And it's a very unpopular thing to say today, it really is, but it is, un it is undeniable that God has value to prenatal life. God looks at prenatal life the same way he looks at uh, life outside the, the womb. It's of infinite worth and value. And the most important, and I'll stop with this, the most important verse for that, at least to begin thinking about it, is Psalm 139, verse 16. When King David is reflecting on God's role in his life, and he says, Oh God, when I was, even when I was an unformed substance in my mother's womb, oh Lord, you knew me. 
Now, the ancient Hebrew language did not have a, a technical medical word like embryo. But we know that an unformed substance, you're talking days after conception. You're not talking months, right? Because it's only a few days till that embryo, once it gets past the blastocy stage, starts to take form. So David is making a remarkable comment. How did God view David in utero? And that's the only way to ask a question, because he's talking about David. How did he view him? Well, of value and worth, God knew him. I mean, I, I, I don't want, I'm not trying to get a, make a political statement here, because that's a very hot political issue in our country, unfortunately, today. But God is the author of life, and God looks at human life of infinite worth and value. Therefore, the sanctity of human life is a governing principle of, of his world, and if we disregard that, we are then treating in a frivolous manner something he regards as sanctified. Verse 14, you should not commit adultery. Very simple, very categorical. But if you look at the principle in the, in the slides, the sanctity of relational intimacy. You know, there is so much you can do with that. But let me just review a couple of key things. The Bible presents marriage and family, because, I mean, they go together. Marriage and family is the very first institution God created. It's part of his creation ordinance. It's Genesis 2. It's the very first thing he created. And if you look at verse 24 and 25 of Genesis 2, Moses kind of gives a little commentary on what God has just done. He establishes its sanctity. He establishes its covenant nature. The book of Malachi in the Old Testament speaks of, uh, among many other places, but particularly there, of marriage in covenant language. It's a covenant commitment you're making to one another. And one of the, one of, one of it's not the only one, but one of the dimensions of that is the sexual intimacy that goes as a part of that covenant commitment. But as, as the Lord lays down the parameters for it in Genesis chapter 2, it's monogamous, it's heterosexual, and it's a commitment for life. You look at all three of those. What's happening in our culture? Our culture is challenging all three of those. And so, therefore, God is saying, if you treat the sexual dimension and intimacy of this covenantal commitment in a frivolous way, you are violating and treating with disregard and disrespect something I regard with great sanctity. And so, it, it again, I mean, you can, how can I say this? Because I don't know you men real well. I don't know what you've experienced. I don't know what you've gone through after your life. But what, what God is saying is, here is the boundary. I've created this institution. I've created you. I am, I am telling you, this is the way to live your life. If you choose to live it in some other way, I have made this universe in such a way that there will be consequences to it. And so, uh, you know, I don't know if I need to say anything more about that because it's pretty self-evident how important that principle is. The rest of the Bible, and I mean this, the rest of the Bible both in the narratives of the Old Testament as well as in the teaching sections of the New, explain to us 
what this looks like. Glenn. How do they deal with the polygamy that's in the Old Testament? Uh, I was hoping that no one would ask that question today, but you have chosen <laughs> to ask that question. Okay. What that's, was the question? His question was, uh, how then do we deal with, in the Old Testament particularly, uh, a lot of the polygamous relationships where several of the patriarchs had several wives? Uh, that's a great question. It's a very appropriate question to ask. You know, I've thought about that for a long time, and I've done a lot of reading on it because I've written on the, the issue itself. I'm really convinced, and this is not original with me, that those narratives of the Old Testament where there is more than one wife, every time you study that, what do you see? Dysfunction, tremendous difficulty, and exactly confirming exactly the point God is making in Genesis 2. If you choose not to follow this standard, there are natural consequences. And I mean, for me, a great example, because we had studied it last year when we did Genesis. Do you remember Jacob's family? I mean, the competition and the rivalry and dissension and bitterness in that household. I mean, Rachel and Leah and their children, that... No one can look at that and say, there's the ideal family. No, it's just impossible to say that. And it's the same way with even King David. King David had, King David had a sexual problem. And there's no doubt about that. Every time he had a, saw a woman he liked, he took her as his wife. And what got him in trouble was when he looked upon Bathsheba with lust, took her, and that led to a whole series of catastrophic decisions on his part, as you know. So, Glenn, I would look at those narratives of the Old Testament as confirming the very standard that God is setting. And then in the teaching sections of the New Testament, this is pressed hard. Here is how I want you to live in this heterosexual monogamous relationship. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, etc., and many other places. So, I mean, it's, it's, this is really an important issue. And I don't, if, it, it, I'm sure you've heard this before, but if I were Satan leading a rebellion against God, I know what institution I would attack. Is he attacking that institution? Ruthlessly and relentlessly and vociferously. Satan is attacking that. And um, i done many, many uh, marriages over my life. Uh, many of them have been students at Grace, but many other friends and others. I've done a lot of remarriage ceremonies where, you know, a couple reaches a threshold like 25 years or 30 years. I had one did 40 years. Would you do another covenant ceremony for us? And it's just, you're just, the, the husband and wife just uh, restate their vows and restate their commitment to one another and so on. And I, when I do something like that or do a, a marriage ceremony, I always give the husband and wife a, a book that, uh, that I want them to use. And I always sign it, may, you have, may your marriage be an Ephesians 5.32 marriage. Because Ephesians 5.32 is at the end of Paul's masterful discussion of the different roles in marriage. And he says, uh, I'm speaking about something that is mysterious. I'm paraphrasing it. 
But what I'm really talking about is Christ in the church. You know, and you, uh, wait a minute, time out. I'm talking about the wife, talking about the husband, talking about the relationship, and now you bring up Christ in the church? Well, yeah, because he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So that's the standard. So what is he saying then? Marriage is a supernatural institution. Husbands, you'll never love your wife as Christ loved the church if you try to do it in your own strength. It, you won't be able to do it. You need dependence on me daily. And um, then when, when the culture of the world sees a marriage like that, where the roles are taken seriously, it's dependence on the Lord, the world is seeing something supernatural. Now, I don't want to get political on this at all, but did you, did you notice the pushback in the media when Mike Pence talked about his faithfulness to his wife. Do you remember that? I was astonished at that. That the national media is aghast that a leader in our country would say, I'm very, very careful how I act around other women because I've made a covenant commitment to my wife. I'm paraphrasing some of the things he said. And I mean, I think, oh, I just, I remember when I read that, I saw, thank the Lord that he had the, the courage to say that. Amen. And then the very next day, I mean, he's just kind of ripped apart. There were several editorials. He represents the problem in our culture. Thinking, <laughs> <laughs> he represents the problem in our culture. He represents the solution. He's depriving the woman of her rights to be in his presence. That's exactly it. I mean, it was just it was astonishing reading far more into that, making all kind of political. And again, without getting into the politics of all this kind of a thing in our country, but it's just when somebody says that, they're giving testimony to God's perspective in marriage. And the reason the culture pushes back on that is because generally speaking, we don't have God's perspective on marriage anymore. And it's just a sad situation, but uh, we shouldn't be surprised. But the farther and farther we get from the Lord, the more and more the standards that are dear to the Lord are going to sound going to seem really strange and really weird, weird to the world. I, I wonder what you think about, you know, each one of us around this table and then just throughout the, the world. As human beings, we think perhaps we can cheat a little bit. Uh, I mean, if nobody really knows it, uh, and, and whatever it is, it isn't necessarily having a, 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 an affair, a sexual affair, but it, in any part of our lives, are we going to pay a price for that, do you think? And what is that price? Well, uh, that's a heavy question on price. <laughs> well, let, let me put it this way, Fred. If, if we have put our faith in Christ um, and we depart from the standards that God has, the price is we lose fellowship with the Lord, we lose the strength and power that we can draw on from the Lord because that relationship has been affected. If we're not a believer, we, we have not uh, accepted the gift of God's grace, then the ultimate uh, price is you know, eternal separation from the Lord. But let me, let me address it from another angle in terms of your question, because um, sometimes we almost get the sense that private sin that no one else knows about uh, has no effect. 
it's just something between me and my own personal lust or my own personal uh, desires. Of course, it affects relationship with God because God sees it. <laughs> no one other, no other human being sees it. But you know, I have reached the conclusion, I, I really have, that there's no such thing as a private sin. That even things that we do seemingly in secret and nobody else knows it or sees it, no other human being, that it doesn't mean it doesn't affect others. It does if if you're in a marriage relationship, it will affect your wife. We're all men, so I'll speak of our wives. It will affect our wife. It'll affect our relationship with them. In subtle ways that you can't she can't always figure it out, but it will. Faithfulness to the Lord must equate into faithfulness to our spouse. Because marriage is three parts a husband, a wife, and Christ. And if our, quote, secret sin, close quote, Christ knows about it, even if our wife doesn't. So it's affecting our relationship with him. It will affect our relationship. And the the seemingly secret private sins that no one else knows, that we think no one else knows, the Lord does know, but it affects relationships big time. It really does. Over time, it affects relationships. And I think... Um, Trying to cover it up or trying to pretend, as might be a better way of saying it, trying to pretend it isn't an issue uh, is, is very, very uh, spiritually unhealthy. And that's one of the, we live in a wonderful time in our, in our culture and in our churches where there is the availability now of, of counselors to help you, if you are willing to, to work through. Uh, my, my church... Um, we are getting involved with a ministry called Fresh Start. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. But uh, among other things, what this ministry does is it helps people work through what is often the fundamental issue of life, our unwillingness to forgive people. And with an unwillingness to forgive comes a deepening bitterness. And bitterness is like a cancer. It really is. It just eats us up. And so what these folks, and, and we have a couple in our church that is, is, is leading this for us, and it, you, ha- you have to agree to do it. You cannot coerce somebody into this. But the Fresh Start Ministry, among other things, they meet every Tuesday night and get people into small groups and so on. But it's to help help people work through the, bitter, the bitterness in their lives, you know, I know you know this often, but it, it is remarkable. I've seen it because I've been in, in a higher education ministry all of my life. I've seen it, especially in, with guys, in the bitterness they have toward their father. They just carry it. They don't get it resolved, and it just it eats them up on the inside. Bitterness in friendships. That can be bitterness in marriage that's caused by just an unwillingness to forgive. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, be kind, be tenderhearted, and forgiving, just as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. So forgiveness. Now, we're getting a little off the, the track from this particular uh, commandment number seven, but it, it all relates to that. Um, 
I am not a therapist, and I won't ever want to be a therapist, but I do know in some of the pastoral counseling I've done that what the Fresh Start folks are really focusing on is a real need, the unwillingness to forgive. And that could become a barrier in a man's uh, relationship with his wife or vice versa. So the commandment is clear. But what uh, I'm, I'm about number back to number seven now. The, the commandment is clear, but the implications and tentacles of that commandment touch the an entire dynamic of marriage, not just the sexual intimacy. And it's uh, I, I I am sure every one of you, most of you, if not every one of you, is married around these tables. But you would agree with me. Marriage is something you have to work at every single day. It doesn't just happen. I mean, you have to, you have to, if you're going to love your wife as, as Christ loved the church and you're going to be the servant leader of your home, every time you walk in the door, boom, you have those responsibilities. And I mean, you just, you, if you shun them, you know, it's just, it's, it's a major, major commitment. And that's uh, one of the, the, the inadequacies in some churches. They are not preparing young gals and guys for marriage. And the attitude of the culture toward marriage is so diminished. I'm sure you know the cohabitation rate in the United States is going through the ceiling. It's a very serious issue. And, you know, it's just saying something about how the culture looks at marriage. It's inconsequential. It doesn't matter. It's not an important institution. Millennials, those born from 1982 to early 2000, they are not committed to institutions at all, and they're not committed to marriage. That's a serious issue. Okay, let's move on. This is getting way too convicting. Let's move into the next one. Number eight, very simple, thou shalt not steal. Now, at least we can say, and I put it there in the, in the slide, the sanctity of material stewardship. I put it that way rather than the sacredness of private property, that the sanctity of material stewardship. The Bible teaches us this. God owns everything. Now, I hope that's not a shocking statement to you. But God owns everything. And when God gives you, and I'm putting it the way the Bible puts it, when God gives you a piece of property or gives you a house or gives you a car or whatever it is, his expectation is, I'm trusting you with that. And I'm trusting you to be a good steward of that. A farmer who owns a large farm, the expectation of God is they'll take care of that farm. They'll be good stewards of that farm. Now, you know, I'm putting it in a way that I hope makes sense to you. But therefore, if God has given Fred property or a car or whatever, and I steal it from him, I have not only violated his private property, I have violated a primary stewardship principle of the Bible. I have just taken it from God. I have no right to own that. God did not entrust me with that piece of property. He entrusted Fred with it. And if I take it from him, I am taking something that does not legitimately belong to me. And I am violating the stewardship 
authority of God. That's how the Bible wants us to look at that. And doesn't that change the whole perspective? You know, we look at it very selfish. It's mine. Well, in a sense, it is yours. God's given it to you. But it's, it's God saying, Fred, I really trust you, and I'm going to give you these, I'll make it up, 10 acres, and you're going to take care of it, and you're going to do it to my glory, and you're going to do it to my honor, and I'm trusting you with that. And I mean, then that, oh my, that gives me a whole different perspective. Because you see, that's what the Bible says and starts right in Genesis 1. God is the sovereign Lord of this universe. You and I are his dominion stewards. That's a very different perspective than the way the typical person alive in 2017 looks at it. It's mine! The Bible says, actually, it isn't yours. It's God's. You are just a steward of it for him. And what does the New Testament say? The primary responsibility of a steward is to be faithful. So that's a very different perspective than typically the way we look at it. But it's also, it's also a, a it meaning this idea of private stewardship. It's also a very significant part of how God has created things. When you have a stake in something, you will much more seriously treat that stewardship responsibility. How many people do you know wax a rented car? <laughs> if you were to a, you know, went to embassy or order some of the, eight, you know, uh, Give me a rental car company. Avis. Yeah, Avis or whatever. And, you know, you, you bring it home and drive it for about 15, 20 miles. You come back, honey, I'm going to go wash the, wax the car. Can you imagine doing that? I, one, I think you're an absolute idiot to waste all the time doing that because it is not your car. You're paying, you know, whatever the rates are, you can set them up different ways. Why wouldn't you do that? But if it's your car. And it is, you know, at the time of the spring when the sap is running and it's dripping on your car, and, you know, that kind of can affect the, the paint job of your car. You say, honey, uh, I got a lot of sap in the, the roof. I'm going to go out and I'm going to wash the car and I'm going to wax it. Oh, that makes sense. But why would you wax a rented car? Nobody does that. And I don't know, when I'm driving around Omaha, depending, I can almost always tell a house that's a rented house Versus a house that's owned by someone. Why? Well, usually the person who owns the house, they take, they take pretty good care of it. But a person is... So, you see, God is saying, when I trust you with something, my expectation is you'll take care of it. You'll be a good steward of it. That's our bodies. That's our time. That's our property that God entrusts to us. And so all of a sudden you start to get a very different perspective of how God has organized this world. He owns it all. We are his dominion stewards, which means we have the responsibility to care for it. That's our bodies too. That's our minds the stewardship of the mind, now I'm getting a little beyond this particular principle, but the stewardship of the mind is a really important principle. 
Most people don't believe this, but an old Joe would know this, an old uh, acrostic from the computer industry when it got started was GIGO, garbage in, garbage out. If you program garbage into a computer, what will you get out of that computer? Garbage, it'll be meaningless junk. Our minds are like that. If you program junk into your mind, please do not expect righteousness to come out. Stewardship. Jim. Your emphasis has been on material sanctity, I think, or something like that you used it. But I think increasingly uh, in our current culture, like intellectual property rights issues and things like that can be just as strong. You can steal an idea, you can steal a concept. Um, or perhaps even if you own an idea, there's a response. Oh, my goodness. Of course. That's right. And that's, that's a big issue in the Christian cultures. Oh, it's huge, yeah, it's huge. And because of the nature of the technolo technological aspects, it's more and more difficult to preserve that. I mean, in, in some ways, it's almost impossible, but it is, and yet respecting that and honoring that. But even in the work environment, I mean, Glenn had a great idea, and I took credit for it. I have really stolen from them. That's right. That's right. That's right. No, no, you're right. It it touches everything, um, everything about our everything about our life, and everything about all the circles of our life. <clears throat> Wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a world where everybody respected that? No would be interested in stealing anything. It's called the Millennial Kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's coming, but it's not there yet. All right. Next one. Uh, we have two more. Verse um, 16, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. I, I have the NIV translation for this particular study, so that may be a little different. But we usually summarize that with one word. You shall not lie. But notice, it's you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Misrepresent, mischaracterize a lie about your neighbor. The context, excuse me, the language of this, the context that it's creating, therefore, is in terms of um, kind of a stable society, a society that's based on order, is a society that is interested in protecting the reputations of people. And if I give false testimony about Jim Beck, I have the potential of ruining his reputation. He may have to take me to court. He must have spent a lot of money with attorney fees and everything to prove that what I said about him was wrong. And we have slander laws and libel laws in, in Western civilization to protect that. But the commandment puts it in the context, it matters what you say about other people. So the sanctity of truth. One of the things the scripture does, and this is very uncomfortable for me, one of the things the scripture does is it talks a great deal about the words we use. 
In the epistle of James, it speaks of our tongue. It, that tongue is just a metaphor for our speech, our words. That the tongue is like a fire. And a little spark can set on a whole forest of fire and destroy acres and acres of land and wood. The tongue can be just like that. It matters what, to God, it matters what you say about people. You can destroy the reputation of somebody by what you say. Therefore, do not give false testimony against your neighbor. You can see that is so pervasive in our world, and I know you don't like to get political, so I won't cite that particular arena, although it's there. But we, we really do. Those of us, the further we, we get away from Judeo-Christian values, the easier it is for us to slander somebody else. And find it very acceptable to do that. Yeah, very acceptable to do that. So I hope... Um, I, tr- I try to deal with this from the vantage point that I think the Bible is sh- sharing with us. It isn't just not lying. It's what you say about someone else that's false. That's a very serious issue. And from God's perspective, um, if you are interested, I'll kind of put it the way God is saying to the people of Israel, If you're interested in building the kind of society I want you to build, this is the beginning point. This is the foundation point. And the ninth point is, not in the sanctity of truth, but it's true. (coughs) And it's maintaining that high standard in everything you say about other people. So because that's so convicting, let's just move on. But I mean, you can. It's real. That's really an important issue. And and, and, and Rob's right. Um, we have we have really lost that in almost every facet of our of our culture in, in so many ways. And there's a whole industry out there that's just about shredding people's reputations and saying terrible things about them. And uh, you know. It's one channel does this, and another channel in the opposite of the political spectrum does this. And you have significant portions of our population that are addicted to this channel, and a significant portion of our population are addicted to this channel. And if you don't know what I mean, you've been dead for the last five years. I mean, it's just, and, and it's just, there's a lot of just really unkind and unsavory things being said. And we seem to love that and watch it. <laughs> Oh my goodness, yeah. Yeah, very much. That's an offshoot of the dysfunction of this little town. That's a good comment. I agree with that. Yeah. What do you think that we can do if we're thinking about the positive things and doing those things in our relationships with others? Isn't that sort of building in a an insulating factor on the other, so that if if our if we set our nose toward a goal of of uh, caring for other people and and loving other people, if in fact 
we do that, aren't we building strength in the Lord to deal with other situations that we encounter? How, how would you comment on that? Maybe some biblical characters and, um, that might come to your mind. Well, I'd like to draw on one of the great theological statements from a Disney movie. <clears throat> It was one of my daughter's favorite when she was growing up. It's Bambi. And in that cartoon movie, Bambi, there's a character named Thumper. And Thumper says, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. I know none of you have ever seen that, but <laughs> unless you had a young daughter particularly. But I say that because, I mean, I really, Fred, when I was in leadership, that was one of the most important things I wrestled with almost every single day. What do I say to my staff? Because we are, you know, we're not for profit. We could not pay top competitive wages. So we continually tried to help everyone understand this is a ministry. What you're doing is eternally significant. But find ways to constantly affirm people. Little personal handwritten notes. Um, you know, we had uh, Employee of the Month awards. We had all kinds of special things to really affirm people and to create the kind of culture in our educational institution where people found it joyful and fulfilling to come to work. Um, that means you're setting that kind of standard where people are going to hopefully begin to speak about one another and with one another in that kind of a manner. We absolutely must do that in our home. Uh, we must show our children how do we talk about other people? How do we share the kinds of things when there's a concern about, you know, grandma or about Aunt Susie or uncle, you know, how do we, when they're just, they're terrible people, how do you talk about them in the family? You know, and in such a way where you're kind of creating that kind of an atmosphere using the right language and modeling for the kids. And I want to tell you, if you have families and you have places of business and we're teaching that in school, that is going to radically affect how this culture develops. But none of those three things pretty much are happening anymore. It's really tragic. And I think one of the things, you know, Jesus did this so effectively he knew exactly what to say, exactly the right way to say it. And even, um, even the Apostle Paul, I, I go back to that passage in Ephesians chapter 4, you know, 31. 30, 31 says, put away slander and malice and wrath and hatred, etc. All of those interpersonal relationship breakdown words that can ruin people. What do you put in its place? Verse 32. But put on kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. And forgive just like God in Christ Jesus forgave you. That's the greatest, that's the greatest thing in interpersonal relationship I've had in my life, is to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving. That's very difficult. But I know none of you... That's just abstract for you guys. You don't struggle with that. So, And it's, it's then treating people the way, seeing people and treating people the way God sees them and wants you to treat them. 
Now, it's 12, 12.32, and I really want to finish the Ten Commandments today. I, this is our third week on it. Would it be all right if I do that? Verse 17 is the tenth, and it, it's, it's odd. It chooses a motive. It zeroes in on a human motive. Shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Covetousness. To be covetous. To covet something. What does that mean? Desire. Envy. Desire. Envy. Envy. You want something that someone else has that you don't have. Can you see covetousness? Can you see it? I mean, you can't see it. It's a motive. I mean, can you see the evidence of it? Well, yes. But um, why? And I know this is hard because you have to try to think the way the Holy Spirit inspired this is thinking. But why do you suppose the motive of covetousness is chosen. It's selfish. Because it's selfish. That's excellent, bud. Because it's what? It's selfish. Selfish. It's the road to self-centeredness, self-indulgence, and selfishness. Covetousness means it's all about me. It's centering on you, what you want, and what defines in life what is important to you. And it's the, the, now again, I'm not getting political, it's just this is one of the, the beautiful things about the United States. When our founders founded this nation and put the institutional structures together in this nation, particularly in the summer of 1783 when they were writing the Constitution, they said, we want to build a, this is a phrase they used, a virtuous republic. The key term that they used, whether it was, was, was Madison, who's the father of the Constitution, or, or John Adams, or John Washington, or Alexander Hamilton, or John Jay, kind of the really key leaders, or about four or five of them, they all used the word virtue. And virtue was a driving dynamic of these people. And virtue is not a society where selfishness and self-centeredness rules, but where the community and and other-centeredness rules. We are building a republic that is going to be based on virtue. That's the word they use. I can't remember the last time I heard some American use the word virtue in a sentence. Nobody talks like that. But the word virtue gets at what it's saying here. Not to be selfish, self-centered, and self-indulgent, but to be other-centered. God is saying, I want you to build a society where the chief motive is always, I'm thinking of others before myself. That's what this commandment's all about. The sanctity of human motives. And Glenn nailed it. Covetousness is at root. It's selfishness. It is all about me. Everything revolves around me. 
The chief ethical standard in the United States of America in 2017 is personal autonomy. And I don't know if you know what autonomy means, a law unto yourself. You are the most important person. Everything revolves around you. And everything about our technology, everything about just feeds that. Advertising and marketing feeds that. It is all about you, and you have a right to it. <laughs> and it's just, God is saying, covetousness, a co coveting or covetousness is the key that unlocks a self-centered, self-indulgent, selfish life. And if that's going to way, the way you're going to run your life, you're sowing the seeds of your own destruction, but you're sowing the seeds of destruction of family, and you're sowing the seeds of destruction of community. Question. Yeah, oh, please. Why isn't the last one? Why isn't it before stealing the <clears throat> You know, I, again, I, I don't know if I can presume upon why the Holy Spirit inspired it this way, so I don't know. I, I think that, and again, I, I'm not sure I can be definitive on this, but the, the last of the ten really zeroes in on what's going on inside your heart. The other nine are expressions of the outward. You can love God and go through the motions, but you love him with your heart. And if you are really serious about maintaining the sanctity of human authority, i.e. the family of life, of marital intimacy, of stewardship and truth, where that really starts is your heart. So you end with the most penetrating of them all, your heart. And that is, that's why I, I, I don't know, that's, that's my assumption, that's my uh, educated guess, I guess you could say. But um, God will say to the children of Israel later on in the prophets, don't bring me your sacrifices. I don't want them. And you say, wait a minute, time out. That's what it's all about. You know, the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, no, don't send them to me. I don't want them unless I have your heart. Unless you are you really love me and you really are committed. I don't want you. I don't want you to just go through the motion. And so um that's that's my my answer to your question. I think that's why it's the last one. Because the others the others, you can fake some of the others. You can, you can fake or put on the facade of, of some of these others. But the covetousness is in the heart. It's nobody can see it except God. Nobody can see that that's an area of struggle. Nobody can see. You can see evidence of it. And so, to me, that's part of what I think is going on there. And if you, we don't have time, we won't do this. But the book of Deuteronomy is organized around an extended commentary on each one of these commandments. And the one on covetousness is just several chapters. There's all kinds of things that are going on inside a person's life and heart. Which is, now can I go forward a little bit, which is one of the reasons why God says in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 and 37, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. 
I will put my spirit in your heart. And I'll transform you from the inside out. Which is what the New Testament's all about. The Holy Spirit who indwells us and enables and empowers and encourages us to live life from the inside out. You see, Pharisaism, which Jesus attacked, tried to have meticulous conformity to the first nine, but were deceptive on ten. And Jesus shredded them. I saw a hand out of the loft. Yeah, John. Couldn't you say that covetousness is kind of the beginning of stealing from your neighbor, mm-hmm. murder, um, Absolutely. Absolutely. taking his wife? Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. it leads to all that. So. No, it is. That's, that's exactly right. Because it's what's, what's going on in your heart and your motives will lead you to then extent the violation of everything else. So deal with the inside. And that's the only... That's the only thing that um, can help produce a consistency in life that God wants. Yeah, reading about the Holy Spirit, and, uh, and you made reference. Yeah, absolutely. To our helper, and uh, I think He helps us. He teaches the some of this not coveting is almost a learned behavior to be happy for somebody else when they have mm-hmm. something. But I think the first nature is to. You know, you see somebody with a shiny antique automobile or something, you say, wow, I really like that, you know. But I think we just, we graduate yeah. inside out for yeah. change and be happy for that person that has a really nice car or mm-hmm. house or whatever. I don't know if that's correct or not. Well, I loved your phrase of learned behavior. That's exactly right. And you and I have talked about, we've talked in this class, about the process of sanctification. It is that process of God changing us from the inside out. Um, We're justified. That's the event. That's secure. That defines who we are. But sanctification is that process of God conforming us. And it's, it's the learned behavior, the change that he brings where Woody and I can look at our neighbor who gets a brand new royal blue 911 Porsche and rejoice with them. <laughs> if he gives us a ride. <laughs> <laughs> I said that because I, I think I told you that. I, I used to tell my kids, Daddy someday is going to own a royal blue 911 Porsche. I was kidding. So this just goes back at least 15, 16. The kids got me a royal blue 911 Porsche for Christmas. It's that big, and it's in a plastic case on top of my bureau. I treasure it. I absolutely treasure it because it came from my kids. All right. I guess the shuffling of, of papers and the body language of this class indicate it's time for me to stop, right? Okay. Um, I'm really thankful that we finally, and I shouldn't put it that way, I'm thankful we were able to complete the Ten Commandments. I really wanted to do that today. Now, what follows, I want to prepare you for this for next week. What follows is we're going to begin to read some of these very elaborate commandments. And the first set in Stony 1 is, how do you deal with slavery? I'm building a society. I am creating, this is God speaking, a theocracy. 
And so what God does is he lays down a series of standards to regulate slavery. And you're, you're probably saying, good night, wait a minute. Why didn't he call for the annihilation of slavery? Yeah, we'll talk about that. Then he's going to have a whole bunch of standards on what happens when a person in a workplace or in a family injures somebody, intentionally and unintentionally. What do you do with that? What about property rights? See, what God is doing is God wants to create a society where there's justice, accountability, equity, and restitution. Now, there are four words. I'm going to write those on the board next week. But God is doing something that, guys, was absolutely radical in the new world. Build a society, not on the personality and power and aggrandizement of a king, but building a society where there's no king but God that's based on the values of justice, restitution, equity, and the entire principle of accountability built into everything in society. A society where there's order, not chaos. A society where there's rules and accountability. So it's kind of exciting to study it from that perspective. I think it's exciting. If you want to be excited along with me, come back next week and we'll get into it. Let me pray as we dismiss it. Lord, thank you for these men. I'm just, I'm incredibly both personally affirmed, but stand in all of you that these men want to come consistently on a Wednesday to study the Word of God. And we're in a section which is difficult, the, the commandments, um, and we often look at those in a negative, confining way. I hope that, Lord, you enabled me to communicate we should not see these in a confining way. These standards are liberating. This is the way you, our creator and redeemer, want us to live. These are the standards. These are reflecting your character that produce a meaningful, purpose-filled, enjoyable way to live. And I, I trust in our discussion and the way we've gone through this that, that, that you have helped us to achieve that. Jesus said in John chapter 8, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. This is the path of freedom. It's very unpopular to even talk this way today, but it truly is. So I thank you for these men. Work in their hearts. Continue to develop these men into men of faith, men of integrity, and the kind of men that represent you to a world that desperately needs to hear about you, and to see the change and transformation you bring in a man's life. Lord, we are all thankful that you're patient with us. We're all thankful that you take your time in doing this. And we thank you that we can mutually encourage and support one another, because none of us has made it. We're all very much in process, but we're in this together. So I pray your blessing upon each man. Dismiss us now with your personal blessing. And as we try to pray each time we're together, may we represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.